0: Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of beyond the breakers a podcast about shipwrecks loss and lessons learned from maritime disasters my name is tanner and i'll be joined as usual by taylor but first a shout out to our new patrons we'd like to welcome luke watches you sleep and peter uh, so welcome to the club Uh, We hope you enjoy the stuff that we have up there on Patreon, and we'll have some more cool stuff coming out uh, in the very near future. Uh, So with that, let's bring in Taylor. Taylor, how's it going?
1: It is going pretty good. How about you?
0: I'm doing very well. Nice. Yep. Getting through stuff at work. Uh, We're actually coming to the end of a term somehow. That's gone very fast. Um, Nice. What have you been up to? Oh, not a whole
1: lot. Trying to get through work like everybody else, mostly. Been a pretty busy time, springtime. Start seeing a little bit more shipping and everything, so kind of dealing with some of that stuff. Um, Other than that, kind of getting back into Overwatch again. Kind of had burned out on that a little bit, but uh, they've had a new season come out and kind of some new fun stuff there. Just a good, fun game that blends like a first-person shooter with a sports game a little bit. There's a like, kind of a arena aspect and kind of a positional aspect to different people in the game. So, like, you know, if you're playing as a tank, it's kind of like being a center on the basketball court. Like, you kind of mm-hmm. establish space and that kind of thing. So, it's fun. It kind of scratches two itches at once with uh, a sports game and a shooter in one. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I've been sinking a little time into that. Still plowing away through Ghost of Tsushima too, but I feel like that is just a something that I'll be doing for months because it is such an expansive game.
0: Yeah. And then replaying once you've finished it, probably too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have to do the like narrative film mode at some point and check that Mm -hmm. out on there. But uh, what about you? What have you been up to?
0: My biggest thing was I finished the book firestorm at Peshtigo. And that's what I really recommend. If you have an interest in Wisconsin or the Midwest, uh, meteorology in general, American history because it does expand out far wider than just Peshtigo, Wisconsin. Nice. The book talks a lot about the concurrent Chicago fire, the fires in Michigan, this whole upper midwestern fire system uh, that was going around at the time. And yeah, it was just a great book. It was very lyrical at times in its description, um, but also really gruesome uh, in its in its depictions of what actually happens to a town that's basically erased from the map uh, yeah. by a wildfire there's actually a, a part i wanted to read here it's a short little segment and this is about halfway through and they're describing a firestorm which we talked okay. about uh when we talked about the um the rg coburn we talked about pestigo a little bit
1: mm-hmm.
0: in a firestorm size is not as important as intensity unpredictability and the kaleidoscopic effects produced from such extremes of heat and movement. A firestorm's operatic voice displays incredible range, from the barely audible soft crackle to the roar. Its choreography is multi-pattern. It slinks, streams, shoots, vibrates, marches, pitches, bursts, stalks and rolls forward, upward, backward, and in circles. Because it's blind and deaf... It can't be trusted to make distinctions, will not see or hear the pain of children, the cries of women, the shouts of men. A firestorm knows no empathy, only hunger, and never thirst. Wind is the invisible bully at its back, whipping flames into a frenzy of lusty gorging. It must eat and cannot get enough, and the more food it consumes, the hotter and more passionate it becomes. It cannot contain itself and blows its volatile, noxious breath sky high in whirring convection columns as the cold air rushes in at its feet, pumping its overheated, bloated belly full of hot air upward. Sand will feed it. Bark, kerosene, hay, sawdust, clothes, coal, leaves, wooden buildings, trees, flesh. Anything combustible will do. Staying alive is all that matters for a firestorm. So that's a particularly intense passage, but that's kind of the the way that Mm -hmm. the book is written um, in, in the depiction of this disaster. I know at least one of our listeners has read it also.
1: Yeah, it sounds really interesting. It made me think of um, reading Retribution by Max Hastings, where they talk mm-hmm. about like the allied fire bombings in Japan and Germany, and that they literally studied Peshtigo and, and those fires to do it better, basically. Yeah, how, how
0: could we do one of these on purpose?
1: Yeah, so it's it's very interesting.
0: That's by Denise Guess and William Lutz.
1: Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. That, uh, if you ever feel like you want to change up your disaster genre, check that out.
0: The only other like wildfire book I've read is Young Men and Fire by Norman McLean. And that one's about the Man Gulch fire. Mm-hmm. So those two, obviously, two of the more noteworthy wildfires in American history. Yeah, it's a genre I would like to read more about, probably. Are we ready?
1: I think so. Let's, uh, let's do a shipwreck.
0: So this one has been a long time coming, a long time in the making. And it's one that I I know we've mentioned before.
1: It's one that I've seen in the Google Drive folder for a
0: long yeah, time. Yeah, it's existed for a long, long time. I think we even mentioned it on the Halloween episode last year, that it was going to be the next episode, and it wasn't. So this week, we're going to be discussing a purportedly invincible ship that sank after striking an iceberg on her maiden voyage.
1: Hmm, This is a a story that feels familiar. So, of
0: course, we're talking about the Danish vessel Hans Hedtoft. (laughs) So Hans Hedtoft was a cargo liner. So this uh, kind of a combination cargo ship passenger liner completed in December of 1958, constructed by Friedrichshaben Werft and owned by the Royal Greenland Trading Department, uh, which is initialized to KGH, uh, which is Den Kunglia. Grønlandske Händel mm, uh-huh. I think I did that right um, Danish is cool because it looks like Norwegian and Swedish but it sounds like German so interesting it, it's, it's very cool
1: I'm not familiar with Danish whatsoever
0: well after I watched 1864 it got me more into the Danish language and so mm-hmm. I started watching the show Born mm-hmm. Borgen um, and it's like a it's a Danish political drama it's kind of like a mix of a bit like House of Cards, but also a bit of like the West Wing. But, in, but It's in Danish. In it's Danish about Danish politics. A lot of the same actors are in it that were in 1864. Okay. The Hans Hedtoft here, owned by the Royal Greenland Trading Department. So this company had a long and fascinating history, technically dating back to 1774. Various iterations. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really have time for it here. But Hans Hedtoft, uh, the person for whom the ship was named, he was a Danish politician who had served twice as the country's prime minister, from 1947 to 1950, and again from 1953 to his death in 1955. So Hedtoft is an interesting person. He'd been involved in politics before the Second World War, and after resigning in 1941 due to pressure from the Nazis, he became active in the Danish resistance to the Nazi occupation.
1: Good, so he's a... Uh... He is on the good side of things overall.
0: So you can kind of see why a person like this would gain power after the war. People want someone who has some legit credibility and what they want Denmark to be. So during his time as prime minister, Denmark joined NATO as one of the organization's founding members in April 1949. Uh, So back to the vessel. Uh, She was 271 feet in length, 46 feet in beam and 21 feet in depth with a gross register tonnage of 2800.
1: Okay, so she's not like an overly large vessel.
0: No, she's not enormous. Um, She's she's built for a specific purpose, and that doesn't really require her to be a massive ship. She was built with the purpose of running routes between Denmark and Greenland, and this was intended to be a year-round service. Okay. Being in this part of the world, it tells us a bit of... The kind of capabilities she needs to have, you know, sailing this area during the winter months, especially, you're going to be dealing with sea ice.
1: Yeah, I imagine that kind of adds that next level of difficulty. Like, at first, it kind of reminds me of El Faro, where it's like she was the link to Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. But in this case, like, you have that idea of like you have to run on a pretty tight schedule, but you still have to do it in ice. Like, yeah, there's, okay. you can't not run it.
0: And yeah, and it makes sense why this would be a necessity because. We can't just not access Greenland for, you know, four months every year. Her hull was divided into seven watertight compartments, and she had a reinforced bow and stern.
1: The hull, in its full length, had a double bottom, and the construction of the ship fulfilled the most stringent requirements of an Arctic ship of that time.
0: Unlike the Titanic, Hans Hedtoft couldn't be criticized for her lifeboat situation. Yet. She she still will be, but (laughs) going into this... So by
1: like 19, early 1900 standard, she's good to go.
0: So she carried three metal lifeboats capable of carrying 35, two metal lifeboats with a capacity of 20 each and four self-inflating rubber life rafts equipped with automatic distress signals.
1: It seems pretty reasonable for the time.
0: Those three items are in every source are always presented in exactly the same order and phrasing. And it's not totally clear, but it seems that the automatic distress signals only apply to the rubber life rafts
1: that's yeah that's the way i assumed
0: okay not to the the lifeboats the metal boats so all good things for a ship that can be expected to deal with potentially dangerous waters there was a bit of weird controversy around her construction so she was constructed as a commercial vessel to carry cargo and passengers Mm -hmm. during her construction so like basically after she's been constructed or like partially constructed The Danish Ministry of Defense had ordered her to be equipped with three anti-aircraft guns, which were provided by the Ministry of Defense. this wasn't in her original construction plans. Uh And so when the Danish Folketing, the the parliament, basically, when they approved the construction of this vessel, they did not approve the construction of a warship. So they were very concerned when they found out that the ship was being basically altered post-approval to carry guns. And, you know, granted, these are just, just anti-aircraft guns, but still, they didn't really want to play around with the idea that the Ministry of Defense is doing these things under the table.
1: Right. I mean, it's clearly, like, only a weapon that would be defensive. But, I don't know, like, when the biggest threat is probably submarines, like a Soviet submarine or something, like, why even give them any sort of you know, plausible deniability and mm-hmm. giving it a reason to sink
0: it. You could kind of understand maybe the reluctance on the part of the Danish government here of saying, okay, yeah, yeah, we're, we joined NATO. We're definitely aligning ourselves a certain way in the global structure, but we also don't want to make it seem like we are, we want to be anything close to an aggressor. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's probably a slippery slope thing. Also, it's like, okay, sure, they're just secretly putting anti-aircraft guns on these. But what happens when they secretly put missiles on one of these or something? Right. So anyway, uh, that caused some controversy and sections of the ship were strengthened to carry these guns and she carried them during testing. But those were removed. Um, She didn't carry those for very long because uh, for what we just discussed, she was basically ordered to have those removed. These were not in place during the incident we'll discuss today. One source said that they were on board, but they were stored like in her cargo hold.
1: Interesting. Like they just hadn't had time to unload them, essentially.
0: Maybe. I I don't know why if they had been taken off. I don't know why she'd be allowed to still just carry them around. Right. I don't know. Main thing is they were not attached. So all in all, the Hans Hedtoft was as advanced and highly rated as a ship could be for a vessel intended to sail through heavy seas in icy conditions. Again, it's kind of it's kind of a nebulous gray area. Did her builders ever call her unsinkable? No, but she was outfitted to be as unsinkable as a ship could be for the time.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's always something gets tossed around. And like if you're the ship designer, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I didn't say that.
0: (laughs) Coming up here, this is going to bring us up to the incident. Uh, Which is the story of the Hans Hedtoft's first and last voyage. Uh, So a note on times before we start. So some sources gave the time related to the incident in local Greenland time, which Uh is three hours behind Greenwich Mean. While sometimes are given in Greenwich Mean time. I tried to adjust them to local as much as possible. But if something just jumps out and it doesn't fit the timeline, it's probably just because I missed one. Okay. Um, And also, like, in quotes, there might be some discrepancy in what time things happened. So on this maiden voyage, Hedtoft was captained by P.L. Rasmussen, and Rasmussen was a really experienced captain. Uh, He was 58 years old, and he'd been sailing the waters around Greenland for 30 years when he took the Hedtoft out from Copenhagen on January 7th, 1959 on her maiden voyage. Like we've seen before, a country builds a a fancy new ship. They want to give it to someone who has a bunch of experience and isn't going to lose it. Right. So the headtoff arrived at Ulianaab in Greenland, which is now known as is the best I can do for the local pronunciation of this place. I watched a YouTube video of, of someone from Greenland, a native from Greenland, uh, saying it. So that that was the best I could do. I don't think my tongue can go far enough back into my mouth to make the sounds I <laughs> need to make. This is near the southern tip of Greenland. Um, and Hedtoft made this trip in a record time. No one had ever done it as fast as her. Of course. We've kind of seen how bad things happen to ships that do things in record time.
1: Yeah, don't go fast.
0: The ship also visited Nuuk, the capital of Greenland, and made a couple of other stops on the southwest coast of the island before returning to Julianhab to prepare for her return to Denmark. Uh, She was loaded up with a cargo of frozen fish, some other general cargo, for this return trip, which commenced on January 29th.
1: That's just got to be an unpleasant time to be in Greenland, January.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem great with the weather we're about to see here. So in addition to that cargo, she carried 55 passengers and she was operated by a crew of 40. So we've talked about ships like this before who run these sort of combination routes where there's more than just a handful of passengers, but that's clearly not the ship's main priority. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you got 55 in this case.
1: I mean, I feel like it's also like a product of what you're doing. Like mostly what you're going to be doing is carrying cargo, but like there is some passenger demand, but like not enough to warrant like a big liner. Or
0: yeah, people like aren't that. needing to go to Greenland in droves here. So among those 55 passengers, there were 15 women and 6 children. Those children aged between 1 and 11.
1: Noted um, champions of shipwrecks children.
0: Yeah, one source says 19 women and 6 children. I, I don't know what that discrepancy is. Maybe it has something to do with the ages.
1: Yeah, if there's kids that are like 16, 17. If they're something being like considered that.
0: women or children. One passenger of particular note was Olgo Linge, a member of the Danish Folketing, so the parliament that we had talked about. Okay. And he'd been representing Greenland since 1953. Uh, and he was actually the first person to ever serve in this role, with 1953 being the first year that Greenland elected representatives
1: not to get too deep into their politics but is it like a Puerto Rico situation or are they like actually members of parliament
0: uh they're they have like full normal representation and i think okay. that has changed i saw i think now greenland elects two representatives whereas they used to just have one for the whole island okay. i could have i could have that switched but i believe 1953 was the year that they passed their new constitution and so Representation for Greenland was something. Um, And then also, they have representation from the Faroe Islands. Okay. But to my knowledge, they're full representatives, and the people who live there are just like anyone who lives in mainland Denmark. Nice. So, the weather forecast so, as they're setting out here, the weather forecast through 1500 hours the following day predicted a stiff wind out of the northeast at force eight to nine decreasing later during the forecast period with isolated snow showers and otherwise good visibility. It seems kind of like what you would expect, like the best you could possibly hope for. Probably going to be windy and snowy, but maybe at least you can see.
1: Yeah. I just feel like if you're going to operate this thing year round, like that's, you just know you're going to be in
0: that. The following day after departing from Yulian Hob, uh, this, so this is now on the 30th of January, the head top sailed into an intense blizzard. Which the German sources uh, that I use for this they describe as an ice hurricane.
1: Okay, that's a, that's a fun band name.
0: Eisiger Oakan, leading to increasingly heavy seas. That's another thing I should note here is that most of the sources for this are not in English. There's actually shockingly little written about this in English. I was really surprised because this seems like a story that you know shipwreck nerds, quote unquote, would be all over. And there's not that much written about it in English. So most of the sources I use were in German. There are some sources in Danish. But yeah, there's there's really not a ton written about it in English.
1: Maybe it's because there's already a British vessel that hit an iceberg and sank. That's way more accessible and easy. Maybe it's weird. It is weird. Like this seems like this would be right up that alley.
0: It seems like such a unique story that people would be all over. But I don't know. So a uh, fair warning. A lot of this stuff is done in translation by me. And so maybe there's some nuance lost along the way, but yeah, there's just not a, not a lot written about it in, uh, in English. Um, so we're in this ice hurricane, the wind intensified from the Northeast and visibility was drastically reduced to about one mile. Uh, so in addition to the rough season wind, icebergs became visible in the head vicinity. Hmm. So yeah, just a reminder, this is late January in the North Atlantic, going to be some ice. So at eleven hundred local time, the Hedtoff radioed reporting position in open water southwest of Cape Farewell, noting that there was sea ice in the form of individual chunks and more spread out ice fields.
1: So like there the sea is pretty well covered with ice. Like there's no like you're not like steering like a couple miles south and like getting around this. Like you're having to sail through ice.
0: It seems like it's um some isolated ice fields. It doesn't sound worrisome to the head toft she's just kind of reporting what she's seeing mm-hmm. so just before 1400 local time hans head was about 50 kilometers off of cape farewell when ships in the area received the following message
1: sos have collided with iceberg at position 59 degrees 42 minutes north 42 degrees west
0: so three vessels in the area picked up this SOS from the headtoft and responded with their respective positions. These were the Transatlantic, the Poseidon, which is a German fishery patrol boat, and the Campbell, which is a secretary class US Coast Guard cutter. Couple of
1: thoughts here. I love the spelling of transatlantic. I like that.
0: It's very cool with the K.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, Poseidon, here we see it in the flesh in real life. So that's mm-hmm. fun. And why is there a U.S. Coast Guard cutter there?
0: Well, there's the U.S. Air Base in Greenland. So I, I assume that's probably why we had a cutter in the vicinity.
1: Yeah, that was my first thought too. the Thule Air Base that's mm-hmm. there. And this is like the peak, like, you know, beginnings of the Cold War and everything. So I, I guess that is why that would make sense.
0: Also, like, I feel like I always think of Greenland as being further away than it is. Like, this is not that far from Newfoundland. So like a lot of the uh, you see later, a lot of the Canadian and American assets involved with this. So, yeah, it's I I guess closer than it seems it would be. But, yeah, so there's this cutter involved with the rescue too, or with the search rather. Uh, So in addition to these vessels, the subsequent radio exchanges were picked up by the Prince Christensen weather station on Greenland. This is like the southern tip of Greenland. And this station was actually the first one to pick up Hedtoft's S.O.S. Also, a little note about the production that went into making this episode. I spent a good fifteen minutes trying to learn how they report coordinates in German. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if like degree and grad like matched up perfectly in that sense, or like if they just used minute like the same way that we do for degrees and minutes. Mm-hmm. And I finally found like a children's video on YouTube explaining latitude and longitude <laughs> in German. And so I figured out how to do it. And then at that point, looking through my notes, I realized that the exchange I was trying to to present in German had actually been conducted in English. And so it would have been pointless to do it in German. But you learned along the way, right? I did. So that's how it goes sometimes. It's also things like that. Why this episode took like six months to make. (laughs) So anyway, the head sent out another SOS at 1441 local time saying.
1: SOS. Ship is leaking. Water's entering the engine room.
0: Three minutes later, she followed with another message.
1: Poseidon, you are the nearest ship. Come to help quickly.
0: So, one thing, I don't know if I mentioned it, but those ships that picked up the call, they also gave their coordinates mm-hmm. to, to let them know where they were. Poseidon responded to Hedtoff saying that a vessel called Johannes Kruse was closer. At position fifty nine degrees twenty five minutes north, forty two degrees thirty minutes west, and that they'd call them to come and help. So the cruise didn't initially respond, but Poseidon knew that they were closer.
1: It's I don't know that I can like recall a time where I've heard the ship in distress like call out to another ship like that and be like, "You will come help me."
0: It's like what they tell you in psychology class. So if you need yeah. help, you should pick someone individually.
1: Like you call nine one one, which is always like the first step in CPR. Actually, right?
0: Yeah. So at this point, Hedtoft messaged saying that she could no longer send on 2182 kilohertz. Kilohertz? Is that what that stands for?
1: I think. We don't want the ham radio enthusiasts yelling at us in the comments.
0: At this point, Hedtoft messaged saying that she could no longer transmit on 2182 kilohertz, but could still hear, to which Poseidon says that Cruz can only transmit on 2182 kilohertz. So it's then agreed that Hedtoft would listen on 2182 and then answer using 500 kilohertz
1: so like is this like a three-way conversation every time then
0: kind of it's it's yeah they're basically just having to talk one way and listen another and so this meant that the conversation would be taking place partially through voice communication on the 2182 and partially through the use of morse code on 500 kilohertz it sounds
1: really complicated in an already like complex situation.
0: Yeah, it adds another layer of just the, to have to go through with this. You can't just talk to each other. And the way that that's expressed in the message is that they can no longer transmit there. So I'm assuming something was damaged. Um, with yeah, that
1: is interesting. I'd like to know what is preventing that from happening. And it, it must be some sort of damage or or water, you know, yeah. entering an area.
0: Uh, so a little about the Johannes cruis. The Kruse sailed out of Bremerhaven which is a place we've talked about a couple times. So earlier that day, her captain, Albert Zirk had reported back to his home port that he'd halted fishing operations due to the amount of ice, counting 16 icebergs just within his visual range.
1: So there's enough ice at this point that, like, fishermen who probably regularly work in ice are altering what they're doing.
0: Yeah, there's a couple in the area. Um, He's going to get into it here, his telegram uh, back home. So this is a telegram from the cruise at, uh, this is 1345 GMT, uh, which would be 1045 local time. This is on January 30th, and this reads.
1: Winds force 10 are stopped off fishing ground in ice field. Stop. Fishing ground not accessible due to ice accumulation and storm. Stop. Falkenstein left fishing ground for Labrador. Stop. Development of the situation uncertain. Stop requesting orders
0: so here we see the crews like you said these are experienced fishermen in these conditions and they're suspending operations in regard to time this would have been about 15 minutes before that first radio talk from the head toft about the ice she was seeing
1: okay so this is prior to the head having issues
0: yeah and this is about three hours before head toft's first sos call
1: okay so yeah conditions clearly seem less than optimal at this point
0: yeah especially we saw with the heads toss visibility being reduced to something like a mile, if that's anything close, and he's he's noting 16 identifiable icebergs, this is an extremely dangerous situation for a ship to be in.
1: Yeah, and I imagine it impacts people's willingness to respond to these SOS calls as well, where it's like, there's about to be a second ship that's going to be yeah. giving out SOS calls if I'm not careful.
0: So back to the time of the incident, Johannes Kruse entered radio contact at uh, 1504 hours, about 17 minutes after the last exchange between the Poseidon and the Hedtoft arranging the details of the communication so they were kind of the ones that <clears throat> they had kind of set up the whole system of well you can transmit here and listen here so from the kruse uh their first message was hans hedtoft this is german trawler johannes kruse answer on 500 kilohertz hedtoft responds how are you receiving me and kruse says okay um so they've established communication Minutes later, the crews informed the toft that they were on their way at a speed of 10 knots. These vessels can't really go full speed in the conditions.
1: Yeah, I think like we've talked about this stuff enough, like we know that 10 knots isn't particularly quick.
0: Yeah, this is extremely slow for, you know, a vessel in the late 50s. Uh, so at 1515 15 hours, the headtoff repeats their request for the Poseidon to come and help them and repeats that the ship is sinking with a lot of water in the engine room. So they include the additional detail that they're carrying 90 on board, including the crew. And at this point, they also tell the other vessel that they can switch to German because the previous few messages had been in English.
1: So I, that makes sense in the situation because, you know, you're dealing with a lot of stress and everything. And, like, if you've got people who can just speak in their first language or a language they're more comfortable in, like, I feel like you can convey a lot more in some of these messages.
0: Yeah, you already have the obstacle of you can't just verbally talk to each other so trying to simplify things as much as possible for the rest of the hour there's messages back and forth they're basically just Cruz is just asking basically for um like radar pings just mm-hmm. like a, a a bearing so they can make sure that they're heading the right direction
1: yeah, this has to be really hard like you're watching this play out it has to feel like almost in slow motion like it probably feels really fast and really slow at the same time for different reasons.
0: Yeah, so a little before 1600 hours the cruise asks Hedtoff if she still has a lot of ice. Hedtoff responds 10 minutes later saying, "Wir haben viele kleinere Stücke, aber kein Eisfeld." We have lots of small bits but no ice field. So in response to this, the crew said that she was experiencing high seas with poor visibility due to snow showers. Crew checking in, the conditions there, maybe even hoping that Headtoft is telling them that the conditions are going to lighten up a little bit. Right. And that doesn't really seem to be the case. Johannes Kruse also kept in contact with the Prince Christensen station, informing them that they were on their way to the Headtoft, but that it would still be one to two hours at their current pace of 10 knots before they arrived. As the Kruse slowly makes her way to the Hedtoft's location, she asks Headtoft if she's able to fire off flares, uh, which she says that she can. About 25 minutes later, the crew asked for those flares to be fired. Uh, so at 1708, the head off message.
1: We're firing flares now.
0: Six minutes later, she followed this with.
1: Did you see the flare?
0: Nine came the response from Johannes Cruz. Die nächsten kommen innerhalb von zehn Sekunden.
1: The next one is coming within 10 seconds.
0: Haben Sie diese gesehen?
1: Did you see this one?
0: Nein. The crew then asked if Hedtoff still had electricity, and Hedtoff said that she did not.
1: Yeah, I would imagine that this is pretty distressing if you're the rescue crew, because you should, at this point, be getting fairly close, and not seeing any flares, like, kind of have to start wondering, like, are we in the right place? Are they where they think they are? Like, what's going on here? Or are conditions still that bad that you just can't see? And then throw on top of that, them not having electricity. Like, you're kind of searching for something. Like, it's like a needle in a haystack situation almost.
0: Uh, so with flares not visible to the crew, she asked the toft if she could see her spotlights, which she was shining upward at a steep angle. Hans Hedtoft responded, no, she could not see anything. By this point, it's around 1721. About 10 to 15 minutes later, the cruise arrived at her target coordinates. So she's exactly in the spot where she initially thought she was supposed to be. Uh And there's no sign of the Hans Hedtoft at the location.
1: Well, that's not good. At
0: 1741, Hans Hedtoft radioed, we've just taken a bearing of Prince Christiansund at 176 degrees. We are sinking slowly. One of the German sources points out that the bearing's incorrect. And proper bearing would have been 356 degrees. Um, So this is way off.
1: Yeah, that's a significant difference.
0: Possibly just confusion or stress on the part of the head toft.
1: Which, like, we've seen happen in a lot of these situations where people give out the wrong coordinates or are tracking the wrong coordinates because of everything that's going on.
0: Uh, at eighteen hundred hours, Johannes Kruse requested another bearing from the Hedtoft and got no response. At eighteen o three, we're calling Hans Hedtoft. We're calling Hans Hedtoft with no answer. Huh. At eighteen o six, Poseidon and Prince Christensen Station picked up a partial SOS signal, so they just got the three shorts and three longs, and it was missing the final three short. Uh, this had a weak and broken signal as well as what they they heard as we're sinking now.
1: So it's quite literally like the last message like as it's going down. At
0: 1807 Johannes crew sent out one final message Hans Hedtoft Zinzida. Hans Hedtoft are you there? And there was no further contact with the Hans Hedtoft.
1: Do we think that she was just giving out the wrong position?
0: It's possible um yeah, I don't know. I, none of the, none of the sources really commented on that. If the bearings were incorrect uh, from the beginning, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to come up. So there doesn't really seem to be any reason to think so. Maybe it was just that one mistake at the end, which again, by by that point, they should have already been visible. So
1: I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 interesting that they never saw each other when they should have been very close.
0: Uh, so the radio operator on Johannes Kruse would later tell how his opposite number on the Hedtoft remained very calm through the whole ordeal and gave no noticeable indication that anything was out of the ordinary, you know, obviously outside of the information they were relaying. Right. So for seven days after the sinking of the Hedtoft, search efforts were undertaken by the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Campbell, the German fishery patrol boat Poseidon, and three Danish vessels. They were on the lookout for survivors, lifeboats, pieces of wreckage, anything to give any sort of clue of what happened. Search aircraft were also used, including some American planes um, from the base on Greenland. I think
1: that's always hard in these situations where, like, there's still a chance of survivors. And, like, you just don't want to give up that. You know, we see these stories of people, you know, being found in a lifeboat 20 days later, like frozen or whatever. It would be really hard to call off this effort or, you know, switch it to more of a recovery effort when you're like, well, there's still a chance someone could be out there and we don't really know what happened to this ship.
0: Yeah, I didn't see anything specific about air or water temperature, but it's January off of Greenland, so I have to assume it's it's not easily survivable. If you Yeah, I would imagine
1: it would be for it. pretty brief, like a pretty small window of time that people could have survived.
0: Uh, so the search efforts were complicated by increasingly bad weather in what was already a really dangerous ice field. The captain of the Campbell even claimed that the experience was worse than anything he'd experienced during the Second World War. Uh, I believe he was involved with cargo escorts across the Atlantic, and he said that that was nothing like what we went through this night or during this search.
1: Yeah, and especially if he had been part of some of those Arctic convoys and stuff, we've briefly touched on some of those. That was some of the most dangerous sailing in the entire war.
0: Ultimately, not a single body from the Hans Hedtoft would be recovered, uh, nor really any piece of the ship to indicate that she was ever there. Nine months later a single life ring from the head toft washed ashore on iceland
1: it's definitely like a edmund fitzgerald-esque kind of vibe to that
0: there's a lot of similarities but there's a lot of strange uniqueness to this story as well
1: this feels like a story that would have um conspiracies and stuff attached to it only because there's just no evidence of what happened to it
0: it's a story that leaves us with more questions than answers for sure most generally how could this modern ship constructed with all the finest technology for sailing and icy conditions fail so catastrophically on her very first voyage or i guess that's kind of the term that gets used her first voyage she did technically sail from denmark to greenland first and then she was sailing back so i guess we could say it's the return leg of her maiden voyage
1: right so she made it further than titanic
0: yeah she she had a better record than titanic So given that Captain Rasmussen was so experienced, it's very hard to imagine that he wouldn't have lowered his ship's speed traveling through these conditions. That's kind of going on the assumption of you've got an experienced captain and crew just assuming he would have taken all the safety precautions expected.
1: Yeah, and the whole idea of like, I don't care how safe my ship or my airplane or my car is like, in theory, my car is going to give me brake assist if something is like in front of me, but like, I don't want to test it. Right. Like, like, I don't care how many safety systems you have. Like, you don't really want to have to use them if at all possible.
0: Over the radio, had softed noted chunks of ice in the sea without referring to them as icebergs. So one article I used from Der Spiegel in 1959, it tried to examine the ice conditions a little bit further. So the article discusses how radar waves interact with sea ice and other floating objects. Uh, Something we've seen in episodes before is that vessels or objects below a certain size or height can go Mm -hmm. entirely undetected by radar, partially due to interference from the sea. That may have been a contributing factor in the loss of the yacht Uzo that we talked about in her likely collision with the ferry Pride of Bilbao, the idea that the ferry maybe wasn't scanning for small enough objects. Right. So the article points out that even if an object such as a floating chunk of ice is big enough the shape might not allow for detection on radar.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that gets into a lot of the ideas of, like, stealth technology in aircraft that, you know, it's not about making it invisible to radar. It's making it harder for the radar to find. And, you know, the the way that it reflects those radar waves matters. And that's why when you see, like, a lot of this stealth technology, it all kind of looks the same because Mm -hmm. there's a certain way of designing things that can reflect and, And absorb radar. Steep sided icebergs reflect radar waves well. They are therefore easy to make out on the screen. The rounded icebergs and flows, mostly those that have been drifting for a long time, the so-called growlers, can be recognized with difficulty or not at all. Their smooth surfaces almost never reflect radar beams back.
0: Like you were saying, it, it works just like stealth tech, where the size is not as important as the shape. Right. This article is called Hedtoft Untergang, Drei Fragen, and much of it centers around a team of Canadian researchers examining radar systems in use by ships to detect potentially dangerous objects in the sea. So these researchers they used the icebreaker NB McLean as their research vessel. Mm-hmm. So this research was actually being conducted already. This wasn't done in response to the Hedtoft. This was already underway. You can imagine the Canadians being very interested in. Sailing through ice, how this can be done in the safest way possible. Uh-huh. Uh, so the three questions were: How can collisions with icebergs be avoided? Are the lifeboats carried under today's regulations sufficient? And does the current mandatory lifeboat equipment make it possible to locate shipwreck survivors under any circumstance? The article concludes with an examination of the Hedtov's lifeboat situation, pointing out that even had crew and passengers entered lifeboats during the four-ish hours, that the Toff remained afloat. The open boats probably wouldn't have been conducive to survival.
1: Yeah, I think that's, you know, we kind of touched on that already. And we've seen that in older stories that being exposed to the elements is basically no better than being on the the sinking ship. Like you have such a small window of survival that, you know, those boats were thought of more to carry you to another rescue vessel that was already there versus giving you the ability to survive in conditions.
0: Yeah. And it seems from from some of the other sources talking about it, it it doesn't seem super likely that Rasmussen would have had people get to the boats in the first place, knowing that.
1: Yeah. Knowing that, like, there's no point in doing it.
0: Yeah. Putting an open boat out into that would have been an almost more guaranteed death sentence probably than staying on the ship. So it's it's somewhat doubtful that they would have even used the lifeboats here. So also in the absence of emergency locator beacons, these boats would have been basically invisible to search planes or anyone taking part in the rescue.
1: Yeah, it sounds like with these conditions, it would have been impossible to see those.
0: Like what the research team was looking at with icebergs on ships radars, that was only really possible under ideal calm conditions, you know, in which case you're probably less likely to need a rescue. So with no wreckage or remains ever found, it's basically impossible to know if lifeboats were deployed or not, or really what happened to the ship. In Headtoft's distress calls, there was mention of her engine room being flooded. The Headtoft had two engine rooms, a main and an auxiliary, which were separated by a watertight bulkhead. But her total loss of power indicates that both of these became flooded. And that raises a question as to why and how would this happen? you know, it's it's a backup engine room for a reason. It's not likely that a captain with Rasmussen's experience would have allowed watertight doors to be left open in these conditions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So a theory is that the damage from the iceberg came at just the right point to damage that watertight division and allow flooding of both compartments. Hmm. It's not a super satisfying answer because like that's such a, it seems like such a one in a million thing to happen to a ship right. that's built for these conditions. But there's there's not a lot to go on, you know, when the ship that's supposed to be resistant to this loses power and sinks
1: yeah and i mean like the one in a million shot is if that's the only thing that can cause something like this then you know that's why we're talking about it right Right. because if it had happened differently if you can seal off one of those rooms then you don't have this issue
0: exactly um so in terms of aftermath to this sinking you know like we said it's it's not one that's widely discussed at least in english speaking circles as much you know, I'm sure some of our really intense shipwreck enthusiasts are very familiar with Hans Hedtof, but it it isn't by any means a household name.
1: Uh, is this like our duty now to brand this as like Denmark's Titanic?
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, you see that a lot. Denmark's Titanic. Um, people have beaten us to that punch.
1: I feel like it's like the only yardstick anyone has in like pop culture with a shipwreck ever. Everything has to be someone's Titanic.
0: I mean, at least with this one, there are other similarities to the Titanic. This is true. So like this one probably deserves it more than others. But yeah, it's still kind of unsatisfying. The loss of the Hans Hedtoft is one of the greatest tragedies in the history of the Danish merchant marine. Uh, In terms of loss of life, the incident is fourth overall for Danish ships behind the sinking of the steamer Norge. In 1904, with the deaths of 633 Danish immigrants bound from New York, this is actually the deadliest civilian maritime accident until the sinking of the Titanic.
1: Interesting. I don't know anything about that one. That's one that I'm going to have to look into.
0: The loss of the training vessel Coenhaun. Uh This is a sailing ship that disappeared entirely in 1928 with 59 aboard. Um, and another vessel named the Coenhaun, that's the that's my attempt at the Danish pronunciation of Copenhagen. <laughs> uh, this one is a passenger steamer that struck a mine in 1948, killing 48. So a, a leftover mine from World War II. Um, so in addition to her tragic place in the history of Denmark, uh, she occupies a pretty morbidly special place in shipwreck history overall. Hans Hedtoft is the last ship on record that sank with casualties as a result of striking an iceberg. Interesting. One of the articles I read on the sinking was from Elizabeth Stimming, writing in the Hamburger Abendblatt newspaper in 1999 for the 40th anniversary of the sinking. Uh, So this article features an interview with Hans-Martin Neumann, who is the radio officer on the vessel Cap Castillo, uh, one of the five ships in the area that heard Hedtoft's final radio transmissions.
1: You never forget that. The details blur, but not the feeling.
0: In the article, Neumann tells about the experience of hearing the back and forth between the Kruz and the Hedtoft.
1: We're coming. We have to be seeing you soon, radioed the Johannes Cruz, around 18 hours. We're sinking. No more light. All dark, answered the radio man from the Hedtoft desperately. It was terrible to hear all of this.
0: Yeah, so he provides an interesting perspective. Someone who, it doesn't seem they were actively... Participating in the rescue, but they they heard all of those exchanges, and that really I think leads into the the real tragic element of the toft This is a really modern, you know, relatively modern sinking compared to what we normally talk about. There's a lot of documentation on final words and thought processes um, of people involved. The whole time, the vessel's in radio contact with multiple vessels. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from her initial uh, striking of the iceberg to almost literally her last moments above the surface. And that adds an eeriness and a weight to the story. You know, it, it it isn't quite a Edmund Fitzgerald situation because with the Fitzgerald, the situation's kind of downplayed or possibly just not even understood. And, and then she disappears from the surface Mm -hmm. and it isn't one where the ship has disappeared entirely and no one has any clue what happened. People are talking to her until the very last moment. And there's this four-hour period where just no one can get to her.
1: Yeah, there's a lot more of... um, Like, kind of what we talked about with Alfaro way back when, where we have, like, the black box recordings. There's almost, like, an element of an airplane crash to this in that, like, Mm -hmm. we know an airliner crash is, like, exactly what the conversations are before it happens. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of those situations, like you've got a few minutes or hours to like think about it and it about it. And everyone might kind of know what it's leading up to. And it is interesting. It There's like a horror story element of this like inevitable thing that's going to happen and there's nothing anyone can do to stop it.
0: Yeah. So definitely a, a story that I got a lot out of researching and I'm glad we covered it. I know there's lots of stuff that we could probably add in detail wise. But this is kind of what I was able to put together to to discuss it. And uh, like all these, you know, we can always come back and talk more about something if needed. But, yeah, that is that is our story of the Hans head toft.
1: Yeah, that was super interesting. I'm glad that she took the time to translate all that stuff. All
0: right. So that's we will sign off here and we'll talk to you all next week.